Chapter 9 begins, and Saul, yet, that word yet there is important, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, to Caiaphas, because he wants to go to Damascus, where there are disciples of Christ, and hail them to prison. It picks up really, that first verse is taking us back to chapter 8, and it begins saying, And Saul was consenting unto his death, Stephen's death, and at that time there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women committed them to prison. So they were scattered. So this picks up here in chapter 9 with Saul of Tarsus getting letters from Caiaphas, the priest, that he might go to Damascus because he's hearing that there are disciples there as well. No doubt some had fled from Jerusalem. Um, Josephus tells us in first century historians that there were probably at least 40 synagogues in Damascus. There was a Jewish community there that was flourishing. And no doubt Saul of Tarsus wants to get there before this heresy of the Nazarene spreads through those synagogues. So this chapter you know well, I'm, I'm assuming. Saul, the, the Lord appears to him here on the road to Damascus. His conversion takes place. It's the only conversion in the book of Acts that's given to us three times. So before we run in here, I'm going to read the other records in, in chapter 22. It tells us there, And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, for whom I uh, also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus, about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And he said, Of course, arise and go into Damascus. In chapter 26, we hear again, I verily 
thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when uh, they were put to death, I gave my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto foreign cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority commissioned from the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying, Notice in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of the things in which I will um, appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom thou um, now I send thee to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So two other times when he's standing before kings and here in our chapter tonight he's going to say he's going to be a witness to the Gentiles to the Jews and to kings. We see him doing that. Look, this is the most significant conversion probably in some ways in the New Testament. This is the guy who's going to put his quill to the page and write 13 letters, epistles. This is the guy who's going to be the most committed missionary evangelist in the New Testament. This is a guy who is not going to back down for anything. Uh, we are told um, in Galatians, he says there, he says, You have heard of my conversation, my lifestyle, and time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles immediately, I confer not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went unto Arabia and returned from there 
unto Damascus. So he gives us a picture there. Interesting, in 1 Timothy, he tells us this. He says, But I thank, uh, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In one other place, I think it helps us as we look at this total picture. He says in Philippians, he says, We, for we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no other confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection. So he remembers and many times mentions this scene. What an impression this day made upon this young man. He is from Tarsus, which was the capital of Cilicia, and the only university more prominent in the Mediterranean world was the one at Athens. Alexandria in Egypt was the third. Paul grew up there, Saul, interesting young man. He is by birth and his heritage, he's a Jew. He says that he's a Jew of the Jews, which basically means his parents were Jewish, circumcised on the eighth day. He says of the tribe of Benjamin, which he's bragging because that is Judah. The ten tribes had been carried away from the north. Judah and Benjamin had substantially become one tribe. He's, he's bragging of his pedigree from Judah 
in the south and talks about his zeal, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He is by learning a Hellenist, his education Greek. He understood the language, he understood the philosophy, he understood their perspective on Greek gods and so forth. He is by citizenship a Roman and familiar with that world and all the laws that were there in Rome. And he had been in Tarsus, no doubt, until he was 13 years old. At that time, he would have been bar mitzvahed. Then he tells us, from there, he went to the school of Gamaliel. When he was in Tarsus, Jewish boys, at the age of six, went to what was called the school of the book. And whatever community you lived in, six-year-old boys began to sit with the rabbis in that area. Imagine Jesus, six years old, young Yeshua, imagine the poor rabbi that had to sit with him and answer his questions at six years old. But he sat there, Saul of Tarsus, six through 13 in the school of the book. Then at 13, he goes to the school of Gamaliel, which was a school of the Pharisees, and he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And that schooling was eight years long. From 13 to 21, he ground through the school, ground through the school, ground through the school. There are historic records of Gamaliel saying, I couldn't keep Saul of Tarsus in books. He was so determined and, you know, he's so learned and so studied. And so somewhere then, around the age of 21, when he's through the school of Gamaliel, he then becomes such a notable part, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the Jewish community, that then he becomes a member of the Sanhedrin. You couldn't be a member of the Sanhedrin until you were 30 years old and you had to be married. So when we find him, he literally says he cast his vote for the death of Stephen, which tells us at that time he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Had he heard Jesus preach? We know that they had come, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and tempted him and questioned him. Had he seen Jesus face to face? We don't know. Had he heard him there? We know that when he listens to Stephen's sermon, it drives him out of his mind. And then to see Stephen, his face shining like an angel, which Saul saw every night when he closed his eyes. And Stephen saying, lay not this charge to their account. You know, Father, forgive them. They know that what they, he had never seen anything like that before. And it's driven him. He becomes a, a driven man now. And he can't accept the fact that the Jewish Messiah would come and be a servant. That the Jewish Messiah would come from Galilee. That the Jewish Messiah would come and be a carpenter. That the Jewish Messiah would come and be crucified. Because Deuteronomy 23 said, Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. And this is grating against every single fiber of his being. But he tells us in Galatians, God who called me from my mother's womb. Because this man is going to change the world. 
And you may know somebody who's the meanest person you have ever met. And you're thinking, I hope he don't go to heaven because I don't want to spend eternity with this person, you know. Or this person can never get saved. Look, look, Saul of Tarsus, Paul blows all of those walls down. He blows all those. And, and, and we see that sometimes people are the meanest right before they get saved because they're under conviction. Stephen's face, had he seen Christ's face? This is eating. And religious people that are angry can be the meanest people in the world. Look, you look around the world, how much of bloodshed and insanity is because of religious conviction. It's not the new birth. There's not love there, but it's religious conviction. And this guy is angry. So he goes to Caiaphas, and he's asking now, because he would need official letters to go from Jerusalem, which is a six- to seven-day journey, about 200 miles, to Damascus. And there at Damascus, go through the synagogues and the community there, hailing men and women from their homes, he said. That was part of what he did. And from synagogues, and bring them chained back to Jerusalem to be punished. So it says, Saul, yet breathing. You know, you can understand now when he said what it means to this guy when he says, you know, I counter all is done. That heritage, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised, I counter all is nothing now that I know Christ. The, the stepping across that line is so incredible that is recorded three times here in the book of Acts. Imagine what he has to let go of. Imagine what he has to say in his life. It never amounted to anything. It was taking me nowhere. I couldn't live by the law. There was no righteousness there. And then I have this encounter on the road to Damascus. And he said, the rest of it is baloney now. Done. You know, it's all gone. I counted as nothing. All that matters now is I want to know him. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings. If by any means I might be made conformable to his death. So we have this man now. This brings us to this picture. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter, the normal word for murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters, official documents, to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, isn't it interesting? Your translation might say of the way. It seems to be an article there. He found any of the way. It's not called Christianity till chapters after this. We get to Antioch. They were called saints here. They're called disciples. That's the word most often used through the book of, of uh, Acts. In Paul's epistles, they're most often called saints. They're called believers in the New Testament. Obviously, here they're called those of the way. Which tells us something. There was a way. You know, when you're in a way, you're in a frame of mind. You're in a journey. You're, you're demonstrating something. There was a way about them. They were called those of the way. And he said, he said, if he found any of the way, whether they were men, isn't it interesting, or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, here's a guy 
who grows up in the school of Gamaliel, who was in the Sanhedrin when Gamaliel said, you know, you better be careful. Remember these things happened in the past. And if this is not of God, this movement, it's going to come to nothing. It won't amount to anything. But if it is of God, you might be found yourselves to be fighting against God. And Saul didn't listen to his old mentor then. He's, he's out for blood now in this process and hailing men and women. It says that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, and he came near Damascus, and I'm sure the guys traveling with him are not happy, because he says that Christ appeared to him around noon. In this culture, that's the hardest, the hottest part of the day. I've been in that part of the world dozens of times. And that sun is blazing at noon. And that's when you want to kind of take a siesta. You want to sit under some palm trees and have some lunch and take it easy. And the guys that are traveling with him and think, this guy is driven. This guy is crazy. Can he take a break? You know, and it says, as they journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, in the Hebrew language, why persecutest thou me? And I don't believe at all this is Jesus saying, yo, Saul, you dog, Saul. I think it was broken hearted. <clears throat> I think it was Saul. Are you persecuting me? Now, when you read the three accounts, it tells us that they saw the light, these other men, and they heard here in this in this rendition here, it says the voice, but that word also means the sound, because he tells us in one of the other testimonies, they heard the sound, but they didn't hear what he spoke. So they have an experience in this. In the 22nd chapter, he says they fell to the ground as well. And when I read that, I wonder, I wonder how many of these guys that were accompanying him and making sure he was safe getting to Damascus, I wonder how many of them end up to be believers as time went on. You know, we might meet a few of them soon, you know. It says that he fell to the ground, and as he did this voice from heaven, he heard it saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And understand this, in the world today, whenever there's persecution against the church, whenever there's persecution of Christians, whenever there's animosity from the culture, Whenever there's anything that's tried to be legislated against the church and religious freedom, the truth is it's against Christ. He said, why are you persecuting me? Because it's Jesus at the center of that. Jesus is the reason that the church has been here for 2,000 years. Jesus is the reason that we've survived and kept an identity. Jesus is the reason that you and I live with any measure of conviction by his spirit, by his word. And when that heat comes and that pressure comes, it comes from darkness against the light. He told us that, to deliver them from Satan, 
and the power of darkness into the kingdom of God. And those things, when they're around us, understand there's a spiritual battle that goes on. Again, Tozier would say playground or battleground. Make up your mind, you know. The New Testament talks about armor and swords and enemies and shields. And, you know, we're, we're in, and we probably have noticed it more in the last few years than before, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. Now the war is over. The war is won. But we may, are we willing to lose a battle here or there along the way in the process? He said to Isaiah, you know, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He takes us through the whole thing. And then, you know, who shall we send? I'll go, Lord, send me. And, you know, the the seraphim, the, the which means the, the burning one, you know, if he needs tongs to take a coal from the altar, the coals are really hot because a burning one needed tongs to take it, puts it on his tongue, sanctifies his mouth, and he says, all right, I say, I'll send you to a people that have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have mouths. They don't, they're not going to listen to you, but I will send you. And Isaiah's got to be willing to say, well, the war's over. Am I willing to lose some battles along the way for the cause of my Savior, my Lord? He's going to spend the rest of his life, and they're not going to listen. And he just comes from the presence of God. And there's going to be plenty around us that don't listen. And the problem is some, like Saul, are going to listen, which we would rather not have listened. You know, you're going to spend eternity with them. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The church, me, Jesus identifies himself with his people. And he said, who art thou, Lord? Now, he doesn't know it's Jesus right off the bat. He knows this is a divine experience, the light that shines. We're going to find out it blinds him. He's in God's glory. Uh, the people that are with him fall to the ground. They see the light. They hear something. They don't hear a voice. They hear some sound like those in John 12 that were there when the Father spoke to Jesus from heaven. It says, he says, Who art thou, Lord? And this is the, the rude awakening here. This is what he didn't expect to hear. And the Lord said, Who am I? <laughs> I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, against the goads, the ox goad. This is what he did not expect to hear. Because he was convinced that Jesus was dead, that the disciples had hid his body. They were perpetrating this lie about this risen one. He could not accept the fact that the Jewish Messiah would be crucified by the Romans. It was. It was. The, you, you couldn't even mention crucifixion in in proper Roman company. And now, who are you? He knows something divine. He, he's, he acknowledges that. Who are you, Lord? And the voice from the light from heaven says, "I am Jesus." And the first thing he realizes, he ain't dead. He ain't dead. They lied to me. He ain't dead. Great for you and I to, to realize that as well. He ain't dead. He's alive. 
And all things are open and naked before the one with whom we have to do. It's great for us when we're in a jam, we're in a tough situation to realize he ain't dead. He's alive. Amen? Just that sense of his presence. He hears, I am Jesus. <laughs> yeah, the one that you're persecuting. He says, it's hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the pricks. Now, these are the goads, the ox goad. And when you were driving oxen before you, you long pole with a point on the front, and you would jab it and stick it, and it would aim it. It would move it forward. It's a big animal. Uh, you don't wrestle it forward. You would prod it with an ox goad. And he's saying, man, you are one stubborn ox. And the ox would kick against the goads. And he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, ain't it? Jesus, heaven is completely aware that this man is wrestling in his heart with the testimony of the Holy Spirit, what he heard from Stephen, what he's seen, and I don't know if he had heard Christ's voice, but heaven is completely aware of someone who's wrestling. Look, I'm assuming on a Wednesday night, most of you here are believers. I know most of your faces. But if you have a friend who's wrestling, you're telling them, and maybe they're even getting angry, you know, that that sometimes those days right before conversion, the person's the hottest. They're the angriest because they're kicking against the goads and they know it. They can't stand it. And here's heaven is completely aware of our struggles. If heaven was aware of our struggles before our salvation, now we're his blood-bought sons and daughters, how aware is heaven tonight of our struggles and our heartache and the things we wrestle with? He said, you know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said, I'm the Lord, I change not. He says, it's hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the pricks, against the goads? And look what it says in verse 6. And he, Saul, trembling and astonished. Those are two good things to go together when you find out the person that you've been hating and trying to get rid of is talking to you from heaven. It says, and he, Saul now, trembling and astonished. And it takes something to make this Pharisee, the Pharisees, astonished. He says, Lord. Now look, the voice just said, I'm Jesus Verse 6, he's a believer. You want to take it for granted that if you're traveling somewhere and the heavens open up and a light shines brighter than the sun, knocks you to the ground, and a voice speaks you from heaven and says, I'm Jesus, that at that point you're a believer. Right? You take that for granted. Because then he says, Lord, he calls Jesus who just spoke to him, Lord, he's astonished, he's trembling, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, now, it says hearing a voice. It's hearing a sound. It, what they heard didn't have diction. They heard something, but seeing no man. They saw light. We're, heard, we're, we're told in 22.9 and 26.14 uh, there. That gives us a better picture of the whole thing. And Saul arose from the earth 
And when his eyes were open, he saw no man. The idea is that the brilliance of the light, it seems, had blinded him. He sees no man. He sees more than he saw an hour before that. But he doesn't see physically. He sees spiritually. And he'll talk about it in 2 Corinthians when he says that those who don't recognize the gospel when we share the gospel with people are those who the God of this world has blinded their minds lest they see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ and believe. And he realizes in this moment that I didn't see this glorious light before. What do you want me to do? And now he says, I want you to go into the city. So when he now he arose, it seems he stands up and he opens his eyes. He can't see. He saw no man. He saw the one man he needed to see. He saw no man. Isn't it interesting? Look at verse 8. But they led him by the hand. He's got to be thinking of Samson. They led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. This mighty church slayer. This this wild wolf has become a sheepdog, you know, in the picture here. This one now, accountable to no one. Filled with zeal and hatred for the church and the Nazarene. Now he arises, and like a child, he has to be led by the hand. What an interesting picture. What an interesting picture. They lead him by the hand. And he must have been more docile than any of them thought he could ever be. It says, they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. This was not the entrance that those in Damascus that were Jewish, that were zealous, expected of this great rabbi, Saul, this Pharisee from Jerusalem. He leaves Jerusalem, a a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he enters Damascus, a believer and a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's quite a journey. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat or drink. It's an interesting picture. Three days without sight, that's God's doing. Neither did eat or drink. That's his doing. He's blind for three days. That's what God wanted. Not eating or drinking. He could have said, I'm starving. Give me something, you know. Not eating or drinking was his decision. And no doubt he's fasting for three days. He's grinding through his theology. He's grinding with his conscience. His conscience in a place it's never been before. He realizes he came into the light. The sin that must be on his resume in regards to the things he's done. Look, anyone here tonight that feels, you know, I've blown it. God doesn't want anything to do with me. You did not out sin Saul of Tarsus. And he becomes the messenger of God's grace. I pray if you're messing up, like when I mess up, and I, I just say that for your benefit, but, you know, <laughs> that you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I pray that happens in your life. Now, look, this is what you, you understand when that happens. Conviction and condemnation both feel bad. This is how you tell the difference. When it's condemnation... It's telling you, God don't want nothing to do with you. Just forget it. You blew it. You're a dog. You know, nothing. Condemnation drives you away from Christ. And condemnation, the Bible tells us, is from the devil. 
Conviction, on the other hand, drives you to Christ. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, I'm such a, I'm such a this, I'm such a that. You know, it like the like the lion in the Wizard of Oz. You got nothing. Oh Lord, oh Lord. You know, conviction drives you to the Lord, and that's from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation drives you away from the Lord. It's from the devil. Conviction drives you to the Lord. It's from the Holy Spirit. Neither one of them feel good. And Saul here for three days must be wrestling through everything he's done. You you think what must be on his heart now of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12 verse 10 and the things he's got to be grinding through here to the point he doesn't eat for three days. He's blind by the Lord's doing. He's fasting by his own doing. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus. His name was Ananias. No relation to the other Ananias we met in chapter 5. His name was Ananias. And to him said the Lord, now notice this, in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, still in Damascus today. As they excavated and rebuilt the city, it runs from the east, easternmost part of the city to the westernmost part of the city, and it is still called the street that is called Straight. He, sa- he says, Go on in to the street that is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas. Isn't it funny earlier we got a bad Judas and a bad Ananias? Now we got something way different. Inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, consider this, Ananias, he's praying. Not P-R-E-Y-N-G, which he had been doing before, but now it's P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. He's praying. Now that, the Lord was trying to console Ananias when he says that. And he says, and he hath seen a vision, this is Saul, a man named Ananias. He's already seen you coming in and putting his hands on him that he might receive his sight. This is how bad Saul was. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard many things about this guy, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he's got authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. You know, he's basically, Ananias says, not that Saul. Isn't there a Saul from Alexandria? Isn't there a Saul from Saul of Tarsus? Lord, he says, behold. You don't say that to God. Think about this. Lord, uh, do do you know about this guy's rep? Do you know what he's up to? Do you know his Lord? Lord, do you know who this guy is? Is this good that he's blind? We want this guy blind. Don't tell me to pray for him, then he can receive his sight. Your whole church is better off with Saul blind. That's a blessing to us. Here's a guy, Ananias. He would have lived and died in obscurity if he hadn't been obedient to the Lord. And the Lord is asking him to reach out to someone that no one would ever want to reach out to. 
no doubt the Lord comes to him in a vision. Because there's other places in the book of Acts where the Lord puts an impression on somebody's heart. If the Lord had put an impression on Ananias' heart to go and pray for Saul, he'd have done what you and I, nah, that can't be the Lord. Nah, that's the flesh. My flesh, the devil is telling me to go pray for this guy. You know, he So the Lord's got to come to him with a vision to make sure this is clear. And the Lord comes to him in this vision. He comes to Ananias and said to him uh, in a vision, and this is what I went. And he said, Lord, uh, here I am. What do you want me to do? And the Lord says to him, well, then arise. Go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas. No doubt another believer. It's somebody that Ananias knows. For one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold. Now I'm telling you, Biel, I want you to think about this. He's praying. Not only is he praying, he's praying for the first time in his life. He had never prayed before. The Jews had prayers for feasts. They had prayers for when people died. They had prayers for when people were born. The Orthodox Jews today even have prayers for when they go to the bathroom. They have prayers. They're memorized. They're recited. They're carved. They're wooden. They have prayers for everything. That's why the disciples, when they watched Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us how to pray. They literally said, teach us to be praying. Because when they watched him, he was really talking to God. They had never seen him like that before. And now this man, Saul of Tarsus, for the first time in his life, this is not some recited wooden prayer that's prayed at certain events or certain feasts he's got to be saying Lord he said who art thou Lord he's probably saying Lord Jesus Lord Jesus probably amazed that he wasn't struck by lightning praying for the first time and the Lord says and he's seen in a vision I gave him one as well a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. The stage is set, Ananias. And through Ananias' obedience, the world is changed. Through Ananias' obedience, you and I have the majority of the New Testament. Through Ananias' obedience, the entire Roman world and Western Hemisphere is touched. And if he hadn't done what the Lord asked him to do, he'd have lived and died in obscurity. Oh, I'm sure we'd have seen him in heaven. But this is a simple thing. Sometimes the Lord tells us it doesn't make sense. It's not rational, not logical. But we have this impression, go do this. And sometimes it takes... Now, look, there are some people who, who they think the Lord's telling them stuff all the time. They're kind of weird. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking when the Lord really tells you. And I want to say this to you, too. If he comes to you in a vision, you should probably listen then. Okay, if he peer, appears and says, do this. So he, he says, I have spoken to him in a vision as well. And he's already seen you coming. It's a, set, it's a setup, Ananias. 
Ananias, you know, if the, if the Lord appeared in a vision talking to you, I can't imagine he, he's doing this. Have you heard about this guy, you know? He, he, says, he says, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, which means that in Jerusalem, the believers, when they heard Saul was going to go to Damascus, some of them hightailed it out of there and got to Damascus before Saul to warn the believers there that he was coming. So he says, I've heard many things of this man, how much evil he hath done to your saints at Jerusalem. Nobody texted Ananias or emailed him. Somebody came. And he knows this. And here... He hath authority from the chief priest to bind all the call in your name. Lord, this guy's got authority. You can imagine Jesus going, he's got authority. No, I'm the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He ain't got no authority from the high priest. This is the reason we're having this conversation here, Ananias. And the reason I'm here in a vision is I have authority. He says he's got authority from the chief priest to bind all those that call in your name. And the Lord said unto him, get going. (laughs) Go thy way for the reason he is a chosen vessel, Roman citizen, trained in Greek philosophy, a Jew of the Jews. He's got all of the ingredients. He is a chosen vessel. And Paul will pick that up. Vessels of honor, vessel of dishonor. He'll take that. He's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. We see him with Felix and Agrippa and and Nero and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And in the weeks ahead, if the Lord tarries, we'll look at Corinthians. The list is incredible. He says, I will show him which the, the things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, I'm glad he only tells us, you know, in, in John, he said to the disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you're not ready to hear them yet. You know, I'm thankful for some of those things. Good Lord, tell me that later, after the rapture, you know. And, and then when we get to Corinthians, we hear the things that he went through. He said, I'm going to show him how great a things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way. And he entered into the house. And putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul. Isn't that interesting? The first word that Paul hears from another believer is brother. Isn't that amazing? After praying for three days, I can't imagine what that meant to him. And the Lord showed him this man, Ananias, would come. He puts his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me. I've been sent. I didn't volunteer. He has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Notice here, he's to receive his sight and then to be filled with the Holy Ghost. He's already a believer. 
Ananias said, Brother Saul, he's already a believer. He already owned Jesus as Lord. So when he was saved, no doubt, he enters into the body of Christ. He receives the baptism by the Holy Spirit into the mystical body. But here he is now to be filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, though he has the Spirit of, of regeneration. Now he has the Spirit empowering him for ministry. It's a secondary experience right here. It can happen simultaneously when we get saved. It should happen many times after that. Uh, in the old Schofield Bible, before I messed it up, it said, one baptism, many fillings. And here he said, go, pray for him, that he might receive his sight. And he said, and he sent me that you might be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, and re he received sight, and forthwith he arose, and he was baptized. Now, scales. So we don't know. Certainly, he, he the scales of Judaism fell from his eyes. Certain scales fell, but the, we only we find this word, this Greek word in the Septuagint in Leviticus chapter 11, where it describes fish that are clean, that can be eaten, and it says if it swims and has scales, that's our word, then the Jews were allowed to eat it. So it seems like something, maybe the light was so brilliant, it seared something on his eyes. We don't know. But it says there fell from his eyes something like scales. They fell from his eyes. And it tells us then he's baptized. Were there other believers there to see this? Look, we're going to see that he's got a hard time kind of entering into the community. There's people like Ananias that won't trust him. Barnabas has to convince the apostles that he's kosher, that he's really saved. And who would choose this guy? No doubt, for the rest of his life, he's aware of families of wives whose husbands he had killed, or vice versa. No doubt for the rest of his life, he's aware of those he put in prison that got leprosy or were sick, and the children have grown and hate his guts. No doubt he takes that with him as he goes into glory, longing to be reconciled ultimately with those who he had so injured. You know, you think of uh, Ted Bundy, you know, in his gruesome crimes, mass murderer, and how James Dobson says he ended up talking with him. He gave his life to Christ. You think of Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a cannibal, the things that he did. And he gets saved and knew that he would get killed in prison, and he was. David Berkowitz, son of Sam, who I write back and forth with him once in a while. Years ago, somehow they got some Bibles up there from our church, and I get this letter, hey, thank you so much. We don't really need them, he said, but I'll try to get them to some folks that do need them. I helped the warden with those with, that are struggling mentally and, and with learning disabilities here in prison, so we'll make sure they get Bibles. 
but thank you so much for thinking about us and sending them. And we listen to your app up here. Yours truly, David Berkowitz. So we've written back and forth. I just got a letter from him like two months ago. We go back and forth now. But there are, you know, when he was murdering blondes in New York City, you couldn't find dye because everybody was dyeing their hair dark. And this is a guy, you know, as a child rejected, as a child, he would sit in the closet in the dark for hours. When he became old enough as a kid, he was killing cats and dogs. I heard from his testimony. Then he started killing women. Something about it. And when they finally capture him and put him in prison, they had to put him in isolation because he knew the other prisoners, there's a culture there, and, and these kind of people don't do well, and he got a shank through the neck and almost died. They preserved them. They had to isolate him more. And then after months, they finally let him out to walk. There was a green area with a fence with barbed wire, and there was one other guy that walked out there. And he said, this other guy started telling me about Jesus. I cursed him, told him got away from him. I don't want to hear nothing about Jesus. And he said, but he would every day give me the Jesus stuff. And he said, finally... One day in my cell, I fell on my knees. He had given me a Bible. I was reading it. And I cried out. And he said, I felt the love of God and the blood of Jesus wash over me and cleanse me and set me free. He's got a number of tracks now. He asked me, please pray for my sister. All these years, she hasn't forgiven me. I was such a humiliation to the family. He said, I'll spend the rest of my life in prison, and I know I should. I deserve to be here. And there are families out there that still hate my guts because I took their daughters or their moms. Paul was worse. Paul was worse. I'm sure he killed more. He took more off to prison. And he only did it to believers, to good people. Who would, if you had a, you know, an application for apostleship. We're looking for another apostle around here. You know, you can fill out the application. Make sure we get your resume. Slaughtered Christians, made them blaspheme, hailed them off to prison, ravaged the church, destroyed it. That's the apostle we're looking for. You know, who'd have ever done that? And he says, Jesus did this to make me a trophy on his mantelpiece. That if I can get saved, anybody can get saved. The Lord had a plan. And, and he took all of my insanity and he sanctified it. And I'm a debtor to the Jew and to the Greek. I'm a debtor to every man. I'm not afraid to go and preach the gospel. By the way, he wasn't worse than any of us. Your resume may look different on the outside, but on the inside. You lust after somebody you've already committed adultery. You get angry at someone you've already committed murder. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you're never going to get into heaven. And it only comes by his blood, by his grace, by his forgiveness. Amen. Doesn't that feel good? In my Bible class today, we're in Romans with seniors. And uh, we got... You know, Paul works everybody over and leaves them laying by the roadside so we can get to all have sinned and come short 
of the glory of God. And the tenses there are all have sinned and continually today come short of the glory of God. And then it talks, says, but being justified freely by his grace, we have redemption through his blood and that God hath made propitiation. Those are your words of redemption. Justification. That's not forgiveness. It's not forgiveness. You can break it down into just as if I never sinned. Being justified freely, undeservedly. That's the only way you can be justified. By his grace. By redemption. Three words for redemption. They're they're nuanced. One word means you buy a slave in Rome, six million citizens, 60 million slaves. You buy a slave for yourself. There's a second word that was used. If you buy a slave, you make him a servant, and you're going to give him his freedom after a while. There's a third word that's used. You're specifically buying a slave out of the slave market to set him free. That's our word redemption in Romans 3. That we are justified freely by his grace, and we've experienced being purchased out of the slave market that had hold on our lives specifically for the reason of being set free. And that God hath made propitiation with his own son. All of the wrath that you and I deserve came on Christ on the cross. That's propitiation. The fire, the wrath. Christ sweat great drops of blood over that. It wasn't because he was going to be beaten and crucified. It's because God laid on him the iniquity of us all on that cross. Your sin, my sin. When he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, it's so interesting because he starts on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. He ends on the cross saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Nowhere in the Gospels does he call him God except when he's in our place and says, my God, my God, why? He's cut off. Why? He said, I don't say anything unless the Father says it. I don't do anything unless the Father does it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Until in our place, with my sin on him, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so I never have to say it? And Saul of Tarsus never has to say it. And David Berkowitz never has to say it. Because he paid for the sin of the world on the cross. All that iniquity was laid on him. And then the fire, the holy fire of God, eternal death came down on him. That's propitiation. The place where the wrath of God is satisfied. And when then he said, it is finished. To tell us, I paid in full. It's done. It's not almost done. Pretty much done. It's done. The wrath of God is satisfied. We're God's kids. We may mess up. We may do something stupid. God chastens the, the kid that he loves. I grew up getting spanked. And your parents tell you things like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And you're thinking, cut me a break, would you please? You know, but, you know, there's parental. That's different than punishment. God may chasten us. But in regards, there's nothing punitive about that because his wrath is already satisfied. It was completely satisfied. That's propitiation on his son. 
So for you and I, it's just as if we have never sinned, and that's been given to us freely through his grace, and he's taken us and purchased out of the slave market specifically to set us free because all of the debt and all of the mess, all of God's wrath coming down on that was satisfied on him. Old Testament speaks of hilasteria on the, the mercy seat on the Feast of Atonement. Same word. God's wrath satisfied. Satisfied for Saul. Well, Saul is realizing this at this time. He will write these things in Romans. He will, he's going to write these things, you know, and put them down. They all become reality. This great Jewish mind, this theologian, is, is that great Jewish mind is completely blown at this point in time. Before anybody even said, that blows my mind. It happened to him. Amen? And, and what blew his mind was the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And he'll say it in Romans. The, the amazing thing is he becomes, how can God Almighty, who's holy, both be just and the justifier of the ungodly? I'm glad he can. That's how I'm getting in. Because he's both just and the justifier of Jophosh of the ungodly. And don't shake your head. It's the same for you. Okay? So, you know, Saul of Tarsus, you know, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory. Not just Saul, not just David Berkowitz, all of us. Because we've thought it. We've intended it. How many times we think in our hearts, just preach a gospel to that guy and kill him. You know, get us out of his misery or something. You know, just, you you know, we we can all be, we all have the potential. Just because we haven't been drugged into the situation doesn't mean that we don't have those things in our hearts. Paul acted out one way, and from this conversion onward, he's going to act out the other way. And nobody, nobody, and nothing. His love for Christ. You know, you, you take a guy in Lystra and you stone him and leave him for dead. And the disciples pray for him, and he gets up and goes back in the city. How do you stop a guy like that? I'd be moving on, you know. Carry me away from here. No, he gets up and goes back in. We need to get up and go back in. The city here is in front of us. The community is in front of us. There's people in all of our lives. We could live and die in obscurity like Ananias, but who knows one person might change the city, might change the world, might change the community. God's looking to us today. He puts this record of Saul in front of us for us to chew on and digest and ruminate and meditate upon. Amen? Amen. Amen. And, and here's the other part of it. Like Saul says, if I get in, you all get in. That's good. Saul gets in, I, I get in, right? You can say to the Lord, hey, he got in. <laughs> we all get in. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Let's sing a last song. Read ahead. We're, there's some remarkable things uh, as we move ahead. I'm so much. I'm really blessed in John and the Book of Acts. What a great time to be in John. What a great time to be in the Book of Acts. Father, we look to you tonight. We settle our hearts. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord. You know us individually, each one of us. You know the things that we would, Lord, and need so desperately to take hold of in our own thoughts, Lord. You know. Lord, what only heaven can supply that we should be hungry for to purify our lives, to to cleanse us in new ways, to have us sanctified and set apart for your purposes in new ways, Lord. But you also tell us we love you because you first 
loved us. You'll also tell us the one you forgive the most ends up loving you the most. Lord, help us have spiritual vision. Help the scales fall from our eyes, Lord. And help us see clearly in these last days, Lord, our vision is clouded by politics and by the news and by social justice. And Lord, we're surrounded with all kinds of things. And Paul, after all that, said he didn't want to see nothing but you. He didn't want to know anything but you. Lord, help our personal encounters with you to be so incredible that we don't hunger after anything else, Lord. And because of that, let us be contagious, Lord. Let us be contagious, like Paul was, to those around us. Fill us afresh, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Give us a fresh hunger and love for your written word. And Lord Jesus, let us take hold of you in a new and beautiful way as our sweet Savior. Our Savior. Lord, we pray in your name and believe we're asking according to your will. Amen.